0: So uh, this morning, we're continuing in the section of Luke's Gospel that spans 8.4 to 9.17. It's our new section we're in. And in this section, another great section of Luke's Gospel, Luke presses us in this section with that crucial need that each of you have, that weighty responsibility We all have to respond to Jesus, to respond well personally, whether you're very young or older, to respond personally to Jesus in faith. And then, given that there are all kinds of obstacles for us doing that, Luke encourages us in this section with Jesus' authority. And we're going to see that next week, but authority over all our challengers and all the strongholds that could present themselves and all our enemies. So responding well. So to respond well is especially the focus in our little section, which is 8.4 to 8.21. That's like a response section. So Luke starts this portion, as we said last week, with that most prominent parable. It's probably the most well-known. Some preacher that I listened to, I think last week, called it the king of the parables. A lot of attention is paid to it in a special way. It's the parable of the sower. But what we said last week, and I, that's my conviction, is that really it should be called the parable of the soils. Because it's not the sower who's emphasized, even though in first place, the sower is none other than King Jesus. It's not the seed that's emphasized, although the seed is none other than the potent gospel of the kingdom. What's emphasized is the soils, four different kinds of soil, and the soil is the human heart. And then Paul David Tripp says, The primary battle of the kingdom of God is waged, fought, and won in human hearts. And your heart is that precious. It's that precious. It's why the king came, he wants your heart. And so the parable focuses on the heart, what we bring to the world, uh, to the word. Of course, we celebrate God's sovereignty, that God changes the heart, and yet this parable focuses on what we bring, our response. Because the right view of God's sovereignty is never to lay back and be passive, just to wait. It's, it, it motivates us for action. And so Jesus emphasizes this in verse eight of our chapter, chapter eight, when he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, like hear. And then in 18, which we're gonna read today, he says, take care how you hear. Likely in your homes, somebody has told you, take care how you hear, like listen to me. And even more so, God says, take care how you hear. It's very important. How do you respond to God's gospel word in Christ. So Jesus warns in the parable of the sower against three different failed responses. They're they're temptations to us. And the first response that we don't want to have is an indifferent heart. It's that pathway that the seed bounces off of. Nor do we want an impulsive heart. It's that shallow soil that dries up, can't withstand the heat nor do we want the preoccupied heart, which is that thorny dirt that just gets squeezed by the thorns. And so in light of that, we're to ask ourselves, do either of these describe my heart? Do they lay me open? Do they picture how I tend to receive the word? And if they do then I'm to realize that I've never received the word the way I should have. I've never heard the way I needed to hear. I've never responded in real faith. I've never really given my heart to Jesus. And it's a mercy, it's a mercy. It was kind of like my friend, when Alan and I were getting ready to go to Peru and I told my friend that we were going to Peru and I, he goes, but what about Ole Miss football? And it was just so funny because it was just so innocent almost, just like, But I had this love, I I couldn't ever think that I would give that up. Uh, Jab Packard tells his conversion story, the theologian wrote Knowing God, and he said he grew up in a nominal Christian home, and and God was just there, But but he didn't do anything. He was like furniture, or like scenery, or like background, or like static, he was just there. But it dawned on young Packer one day during a sermon that Jesus wasn't just there, he was calling him. (laughs) Through that sermon, he was calling him, like he was desiring to be young Packer's savior and Lord and master. And Packer said, I realized I was dodging that, I was evading that, I was essentially saying no to that. And that wasn't okay, it wasn't okay, it was sin. And that realization is what God used to change his heart. And so the heart is the issue. Like, it's not the presence, it's the heart. And so Jesus urges us to bring a prepared heart to the word of God. And that's the good soil. He he says it's the prepared heart is this good and noble heart that's not like categorically different from other hearts it's it's a heart that we that we lay open that we let god do his work that will take the word in deep such that we'll cling to it he says we'll hold it fast even when it's tough and we'll aim to bear fruit in patience knowing it's not going to be an easy thing And there's still obstacles, but that's the desire and drive of our heart to persevere in the gospel, to take the word in deep. And so since the old man is always battling against us and we always feel it, the prepared heart is just always tilling up hard soil. It's always digging down into shallow soil. It's always pulling out, as Calvin says, this thick forest of thorns that we've all got, that every believer has to fight against. But that work manifests good soil. It manifests persevering. And so, Alistair Begg says this, our continuance, our persevering isn't the ground of our salvation, but it is the evidence of it. The good soil perseveres, bears good fruit in patience. So, this leads into our passage today. And again, the theme is our response. So, let's read it. Uh, Luke 8, wonderful passage. 16 through 21, hear God's word. Jesus says, "'No one, after lighting a lamp, "'covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, "'but puts it on a stand "'so that those who enter may see the light. "'For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, "'nor is anything secret that will not be known "'and come to light.'" take care then how you hear for to the one who has more will be given and from the one who has not even what he thinks that he has will be taken away then his mother and his brothers came to him but they could not reach him because of the crowd and he was told your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you but he answered them My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. And the grass withers, flowers fade, and this this good word endures forever. It's for us. Let's pray the little prayer of illumination together. Lord God, may your word be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So two points. First is an absurd comparison, and the second is an awkward confrontation. Absurd comparison, awkward uh, confrontation. So first, an absurd comparison. Jesus says, uh, no one After lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. No one in his right mind would do that. It's absurd. It would be foolish, even bizarre, and maybe even dangerous if you put it under your bed. the purpose of a lamp is to reveal light, not to conceal light. And Jesus is referring to these little lamps they, just a common person had. You know, they lived in these one room, mud, rock homes. They had this common lamp. It's this terracotta, saucer-shaped vessel that was covered, that held olive oil inside. There was kind of a nozzle at one end where a wick would come out, then a hole up top for the oil and for air. And just the common peasant, farmer, fisherman, he had a lamp like that. So no one would light this lamp, I mean, it's open fire, and put a jar over it or hide it under a bed. It just wouldn't make sense, right? They put it on a lamp stand, this little two-foot-high stand, or they'd put it in a rock that jutted out from the wall or maybe on a table. Uh, the point of the lamp is to shed light for all who enter the house to see by it, to enjoy it, to benefit from it. You'd wanna use it in such a way that you'd maximize its coverage. You want to the whole little room to be illuminated by it. So what's the point of this little parable? Kind of a proverb really, it's, it's kind of enigmatic. And just Jesus is saying, as foolish and as bizarre and as potentially dangerous as it would be to cover over and and hide a lit lamp with a jar or a bed. Even more foolish, bizarre, and potentially dangerous would it be to cover over and hide the light of Jesus' gospel, which which is in you. Uh, You want it to be as visible as possible. I mean, that's the point. So, Jesus is still speaking of a true response to the word. And see Jesus is the light and Luke puts a lot of emphasis on this. You think of Zechariah's prophecy, that song he sings, he erupts in this beautiful song when God opens his mouth again and he says, he speaks of Christ, he says, he's the sunrise who's visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide their feet in the way of peace. Or oh, he's thinking of Simeon. You know, remember Simeon, old Simeon takes Jesus in his arms and he says, he's God's salvation, God's light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory for his people Israel. Jesus himself is that light and he proclaims the light of salvation. We could say Jesus is the lamp lighter. He lights those lamps. And by his preaching of the gospel of the kingdom, he's lit the lamps of his disciples. And God's light is filling up their lives and dispelling the darkness of sin and fear. And But the evidence of this right response, this true hearing, this good soil, is that they won't cover up or, or hide their light, but shine their light. And it's like First John 1, 6, and 7, when John says, if, you, if we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, like they're coincident. If we say we have fellowship while we are walking in darkness, we we lie, like we're lying, and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Or as Ephesians 5 says that we read earlier in the service, walk as children of light, Like, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good, right, and true, and so a kindled or burning lamp will make light visible. And light is this beautiful central image in scripture, the symbol in scripture, a lot is wrapped up in light. Think of all those passages that speak of light. You gravitate towards them. I mean, it's God's glory and majesty. It's new creation, let there be light. It's Jesus's truth rather than error. It's salvation, like bringing us from darkness into light. It's, it's fellowship, communion with one another, no barriers, it's, it's holiness, it's putting off sin, all of that wrapped up in this symbolism of light. And Jesus is saying that we're to make this visible, a burning or kindled lamp will radiate or glow, it will shine Jesus' light, the light of the gospel, the kingdom, God's salvation to others, and these others in the proverb are seeking to make their way into the house, which is really sweet, you know, that they're, God's moving in the world to bring people into his house and he wants us to be visible, like to, to, that these images in scripture would be reflected in our life And so Jesus' proverb itself, again, focuses on the response to the gospel, Jesus' light. And he's talking about a, a changed life and then casting the light of the gospel to others in darkness. Well, then Jesus makes a further application to his disciples. He says this in the next verse. He says, "'For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, "'nor is anything secret that will not be known "'and come to the light.'" I mean, these are proverbs. They're, they're kind of difficult to, to sink down into, but there are two things here. One is illum- that light illumines, and the other is that light exposes. Two roles, they're, they're related. It illumines and it exposes. So when we think of this in its illuminating role light as illuminating. Just think of what Jesus is doing. Jesus has been speaking in parables. It's it's difficult to understand. He could speak more clearly, and Jesus is focusing on his disciples, not on the crowd. So, when he's talking about the illuminating role, he could be responding to this. That someone might say, yeah, um, that Jesus is saying to an objector, why are you speaking only to the disciples instead of the crowd? He could say, yeah, for now I'm speaking in parables. I'm explaining to things in private to you so that it could seem that I'm covering up or I'm hiding the light, but just as hidden things tend to get found out and secret things tend to come to the light, it's just a truth, even so, the light I'm giving you now will manifest itself, will be made known, and that's my purpose. And what he's saying is once I've fulfilled my mission, which you can't really understand now because it takes nothing less than the cross, it takes nothing less than resurrection. It's, it's bigger than you know right now, but once I've fulfilled my mission in that near future, you will illumine the world with the light of my salvation because I will have accomplished it. It's, it's illuminating. But in terms of its exposing role, what about that? In terms of light exposing things. Jesus is saying, my word will shine light into people's dark hearts. It's going to do that. I I will expose what's there. Like you can't hide from me. You can't keep your inner thoughts and attitudes secret. At some point, now in your life, which is better by far, that's called conviction. Or if not, at that final day in judgment day, that would be called entering into curse. It will be made manifest, it will be known if you truly responded to me or not. If you truly heard with the hearing of faith, if you were good soil or not. So, so don't think you can pretend or fool me, I see your heart, Jesus is saying, my light will expose you just like the state of the soils became obvious over time. It's like Simeon's prophecy, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. We, we, we decide one way or the other when we encounter Christ. The light exposes. So Jesus just says, take care how you hear. He stresses this by adding both an encouragement and a warning. So he goes on to say, for to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even when he thinks that he has, will be taken away. It's an encouragement, but it's also a warning. The encouragement is that if we make good use of the gospel, if we receive it deeply into our hearts, if it's like seed that goes down into good soil, if it's like light that radiates more and more from our lives like a lit lamp, then the benefit of the word in our lives will advance. It will be ever increasing measure. It just tends to advance more and more. It's just common principle. If we're going after something, we we tend to improve exponentially. If a musician focuses on her instrument, an artist on his art, an athlete in her sport, a student in his studies, and really gets into it. The more she puts forth the effort, the more the abilities build on each other and the skills expand. I mean, he's using that common principle in the spiritual life too, but behind this is the, the blessing of God that, that motivates it, that, that encourages it, that spurs it on. But you see there's another side to that and the other side is also true. The other side is if I don't make good use of the gospel word, if I don't receive it deeply into my heart, if I'm not like good soil, if I don't radiate it from my life like a lit lamp, if I kind of squelch it and hide it and cover it up, then the benefit of the word in, in my life will decline with ever increasing measure. It, it, it results in hardening. I mean, it's also a common principle. Like I topped out on my musical abilities in fifth grade and I stunned my family with the one song I can still play on the piano just in special occasions, but I, I just completely lost any musical gifting. I I topped out in my artistic endeavors in seventh grade. My magnus opus was a still life of squash. I I have it hanging in my closet just to remember the, the glory days, but I've lost any artistic ability. I've just complete disuse. It's a common principle, we just lose it. But behind that is also the judgment of God. It's a warning, it's verse 10 of the chapter. If you remember verse 10, We have to add that to that when it says, when Jesus says, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for those I speak in parables so that seeing they don't see, hearing they don't understand. It's a warning to us and the warning is, as one commentator says, in matters spiritual, standing still is impossible, we just don't. A person either gains or he loses, he advances or he declines. Or another says neutrality is impossible. Like if you think you can sit still, you just can't. And Jesus is warning us of that. We can't be Switzerland. And even Switzerland is neutral now. We can't be that, we're advancing or we're re- retreating. Well, then we get to an awkward confrontation, an awkward confrontation. And so we have all that, we have the parable of the soils and we have all this about light and responding and then Jesus gives us just concrete event. It's this awkward confrontation. And so Jesus' mother and brothers come to see him and they hadn't seen him in a while. You know, they're in Nazareth, he's walking around Galilee and they can't get close to him because of the crowd. All these people are pressing in on him. And so Matthew and Mark put this event before the parable of the sower, but Luke places it afterward and he has a point to that. He wants to use this little event as the conclusion to this portion that talks about our response to the word. So this event becomes an example of a real life response. It becomes an example of a real, it becomes a real world illustration of of Jesus's two parables. So if you wanna see how two parables work out in real life, here's an illustration for that. It really happened. And so they come asking for him And Luke doesn't focus on what their motives are, but you can read between the lines, and and Mark does, they're really worried about him, they're concerned about him, they think he's in danger, his mother's protective, she's concerned about him. They also wonder if he's kind of overextending himself. Maybe he needs to come on home for a bit, get recharged. Maybe they need to talk a little sense to him. It's getting too much, out of control, maybe. Or his brothers, you know, don't even believe in him at this point. They're kind of sarcastic about him, but her intents are good, but they're motherly. Come on home. I'm worried about you. So they want to take him home. And in the world of Jesus' day, you know, family is everything. Like we can, we can sympathize with that. Like family is it. The family unit, honoring your mother and father, was of first importance. If your mother came for you, you went to see your mother. It's just, you didn't ask any questions. You just went out to see your mother. But Jesus' mother and brothers send a messenger into the crowd to ask Jesus to come out. He suspects what they want and instead of going out to see his mother, he sends a messenger back. And the messenger says, in the message he says, my, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. And so the preacher, Jeff Thomas, says this was earth-shattering, culture-changing. And the Scottish preacher, William Steele, says this may be one of the bravest things Jesus ever said, completely challenged a culture, but left himself open to the accusation that you broke the fifth commandment, you were disrespectful. The, The crowd would be stunned by this. Mary would feel like Jesus slapped her. In the, in the culture of that day, you know, the family unit was so fundamental, non-negotiable, it just didn't matter. You just you did what the family said. And so we know Jesus had good reasons for it. Like we know Jesus loved his mother dearly. We know he didn't break the fifth commandment. I mean, even when he's lying, even when he's hanging on the cross to redeem the world. He looks down at his mother, and he makes sure she's taken care of. Mother, you're gonna become John's uh, mother. You know, you're gonna be in John's home. I'm gonna take care of you. He's thinking about his mother at that point. Dear, sweet. I mean, there's tugs at our heartstrings. Like, what's going on with Jesus? Why does he do it? But see, Jesus is loving his mother here. He has to do this. We're still talking about response. And so, several things we could say, and there's so much we could say, but Jesus is implicitly telling his mother and his brothers, you need to be here. This is where you need to be, not trying to get me to go home with you. I'm carrying out the mission of redeeming the world. You need to be here. You. You should be letting the, world, the word go deep. You need to be good soil. You need to be hearing with the hearing. You need to be taking the light and shining it. You need to be here. You don't need to be removing me from this. I mean, this is important. You need to be here. What I'm saying is important. It's so important that even family relationships and concerns can't get in the way of it. You need to be here. And along with this, Jesus is also saying that as important as earthly families are, and they are throughout scripture, our mothers and our fathers, our grandfathers, our grandmothers, sons, daughters, husbands, wives, brothers, sisters, they're they're not our most important family. Like flesh and blood is not our most important family. The Holy Spirit bond between believers is stronger than the bond of blood or biology. Like the family of faith is our essential family. It's it's basic, fundamental. And of course we labor and we pray and we work and we nurture that our earthly families would be also our family of faith, but it is our spiritual family that's the strongest, Jesus says, Jesus is speaking of all those who respond well to him with the hearing of faith, with trusting and obeying, with hearing and doing. That's our first family that receives our greatest attention and greatest allegiance, and he needed to challenge that cultural presupposition. He needed to do that, and that was loving to do that, and he needs to do that for us. Like, we're not far removed from that. It's a beautiful thing, but it can be an idolatrous thing. And Jesus is saying your family of faith is fundamental. The spirit that ties you to one another is your chief allegiance. And he also says something else here that he wants everybody to get. It's precious. Maybe most importantly of all, what he's saying is I've come... I've come because my burning desire, my drive here, my joy is that I want you in my family. Like, I I want to be your big brother. I want my father to be your father. I want nothing less than that. There is no relationship. There is nothing that can take precedence over that desire that I have for you, that you would call God Father for yourself like I do, that you would count on me as your elder brother who's gonna look after you. Like, that's why I'm here. That's what I'm doing. What a, what a truth. How, if, they, if the crowd thought about that a little bit more, wouldn't that make them stagger to think what Jesus is actually promising here? But that's what he promises you here today. I want you in the family of God. And so we see Jesus' motivation for preaching the gospel to us and why we should respond. What do you get? What do you get? You're sitting here today and you listen to him speak the words. I just represent him in a faltering way, but it's Jesus who speaks with you today. And you're looking at this heartwarming motivation of Jesus to speak his gospel word to you. He's looking at you saying, I want you to be good soil and not barren soil. Like I want your life to be fruitful. That's why I preach to you. And being fruitful is what you're designed for. What fulfills you, I'm preaching. Respond because that's what I want from you. He looks at you and says, I want you to be a shining lamp. Like I want all those symbolism of light to just well up within you. I want you to be full of my glory, truth, holiness, communion, fellowship. That's what I want for you. Who would want to live in darkness? You know, Darkness has a certain allure to it. it I mean, you have to be honest, we choose darkness because it's pleasurable. There's sin patterns that are pleasurable but they're also dark and you know it. You get stuck there and it's, you want out. Jesus, I want you to walk in the light. And then he looks at us and says, why am I preaching to you? Because I want you in my family. Like I want to count you my brothers and sisters. I want you to be sons and daughters of the Father. Look at three incredible motivations for Jesus to preach. Fruitfulness, light, family. And that's what he desires. And not just break your heart? So won't, won't you take care how you hear? Think of what this requires of Christ. Okay, that's what he wants, but what does it require of him? And nobody knows about it yet, but we do. He's going to be half, he's going to be made poor soil. Like Jesus will become poor soil. Illustrated by the fact he's crucified in a trash heap in Golgotha. Like utter poverty of soil. So he can take that away from us. So he can be the seed planted in poor soil that has an abundant harvest and converts it into good soil i mean he's going to be plunged into utter darkness of hell at the cross like darkness like no other a tangible darkness darkness of curse and judgment that you and i deserve but he he plunges down into that that he might dispel the darkness of curse and bring us into light He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me in order that we will never do that, brought into light. But then the father-son bond is broken at the cross in some incredible, mysterious way in order that you and I will be brought into sonship and daughters of, of God. It takes that, he has to endure every enemy to bring us into these blessings, every obstacle to bring us into this benefit, and he does it, and that's the gospel of Christ. He he pays for all of our sin, and he provides us with all the righteousness we'll ever need, and he gives us the gift by His spirit of faith that accompanies the word and just says, would you respond? I've given you everything, and I want all this for you, and that's what you're created for. Don't choose something else. May it be so. May God add his blessing. Amen.